Seven years ago, college wrestler Damian Hurd disappeared from a party in Gunnison, Colorado. Everyone has been drinking or whatever the usual party scene. When, how, and why he left are questions I need your help to understand. Nobody's heard from him. No, it's just like he disappeared. From Cold Case Productions and Podcast One, Final Days on Earth, The Life and Death of Damian Hurd. I'm your host, Claire Sanima. Join me April 20th for the season premiere. Hey everyone, welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast, and uh, thank you all for being here. We appreciate it very much. We've been interviewing some great guests lately, and today is no exception. And uh, again, keep those winds blowing in the sails of the Corolla Pirate Ship so we can keep doing this thing. We do appreciate it very much, and we try to select those folks carefully so uh, the things we uh, put out there, we stand behind. Today, it's Dr. Vermel Green. Uh, she has a book, Please Teach Me Like I'm a Boy, 10 Steps to His Success in School and in Life. Uh, I thought this would be a very timely and interesting topic in that um, males are in a, let's call it a transition, uh, and they're falling behind girls. And uh, the males learn differently. Uh, educators need to be uh, up on uh, instructional methods. I know my friends in uh, neuropsychology will often specialize in male or female because the neuropsychology, the brains are so different that literally they don't feel they can do both. Uh, and so they will dedicate themselves to all-male or all-female neurobiological issues. Dr. Green, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Dr. Drew. It's a privilege. So I, I want to mine you for all you've got. So talk to us. Let's let's start with the context. What's going on with boys now? Oh, my goodness. Our boys are suffering in ways that we could never imagine. Uh, what has happened is that over the years – um, in, in an effort to help our girls, the whole society has changed, especially in regards to school and education. Uh, back in the 1980s, when girls weren't doing as well as the boys in math and science, then the advocacy groups for girls stepped forward and said, you know, we have to change curriculum. We have to w- change the way that math is being taught and science is being taught. You know, we, we need to, to, to insert more language in, because that will help the girls. Mm. So math went from no longer just being computation. It became uh, reading about math, mm. writing about math. In fact, we had a test here in Maryland that when the children took it, if they knew that, for example, five plus five was 10 and they got the answer correct, but they couldn't explain in detail why mm-hmm. five plus five was 10, the child who could, but maybe said five plus five was eight, they got a higher score than the child oh, who boy. could explain, but said five plus oh, five was Oh boy. 10. I'm not sure we're doing anybody a favor when we do that, unless we really get into uh, the depths of logic. Uh, but then that's still computational in a sense. Yes, yes. And so what happened is that girls began to thrive. And that's wonderful. I want the girls to thrive. I used to be a little girl. I want them to do well. Yeah, me too. But it's not a zero-sum game. It's not a seesaw. If the girls go up, then the boys have to come down. We can help the boys as well. So as schools became more uh, girl-friendly, more um, feelings-centered, uh, less movement you know, they started banning games like do- dodgeball. They said that's just too violent or tug of war. That's just, you know, that's just hurting people's self-esteem. As schools became more and more centered on the test, more on um, sedate kind of activities, cutting recess down to five to 10 minutes, that was hurting our boys. Mm. Boys learn differently than girls. Unfortunately, teachers don't know that. I'm, well, talk, let, I'm talking let, about in generality. Yeah, let me stop you. Not only did they not know it, you're not allowed to say that because because the prevailing hmm, what shall I word shall I use prevailing foolishness. Well, it is foolishness, but but the the post structural philosophy is that everything is a social construct that there's that everything is a tabula rasa upon which society exclusively especially as it pertains to gender i mean i'm a, i you know i'm a biologist i mean things that 
produce an ova are female and things that produce spermatozoa are male. And I, I understand that gender has all kinds of other issues in the human, but to the exclusion of the biology has become bizarre. I'm a biologist also, Drew. I taught biology in high school. And when I started hearing about how, you know, you know, it doesn't matter that, you know, there's an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. That doesn't matter. You know, XX, we're all the same. And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. That's not true. And anyone who can sit, who continues to say that boys are just like girls, either never had a son and a daughter, right? never interacted with children. For sure. Because they are so different. Mm-hmm. And 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 then of course there's a spectrum within the male and female where they cross over and they're similar and we should embrace all of that all good, but to pretend reality is one thing when it isn't is so destructive and and it specifically creates the circumstance you're talking about where we ignore any potential needs of a, a different biology. What happens too is that when you're just concentrating on one gender or one sex, you know, you're doing it at the, at the, you know, their election of the other. Are, are and, we going to be seen as uh, uh transphobic by just having this conversation? Well, you know what, to me, phobia, that's a fear. Fear. I'm right. not afraid. Me neither. But I'm not either, but, but, and, and I'm an, I'm an ally. But I also am a biologist, so I, we have to be able to blend the two. It can't be all one way or all the other. Absolutely, absolutely. Our boys are in crisis, and I know that there's an um, advocacy group for our transgender students and our LGBTQ students as well, but it's our boys, especially being a black woman, I'm looking at our black boys and mm-hmm. how they are just failing at the bottom of test scores and at the top of suspension and expulsion rates. Our, our, well, our I, I, I must tell you, in Southern California, the way they deal with that is no more suspensions for anybody and no more grades. Uh, problem solved. Problem solved. So what do we do, Dr. Green? What, what do we, how do we really solve the problem? Well, our boys, first of all, um, need certain things. All boys, especially our black boys, they need certain things that society is – seems to be hell bent on not giving them. Yeah. Uh, they're always talking about, you know, white supremacy is the danger. White supremacy. No, for our black boys, the number one problem is fatherlessness. Mm. Our boys not having fathers, the majority of black babies. Now, I think the number is something like 70% or more. Um, 70% of our black children not being born into um, two parent homes. Also, illiteracy, substandard schools, that's another danger. Abortion is another danger where the black population is maybe 17% of the population, but we're 33% of the the amount of abortions. Those are the dangers for our children. White supremacy, we have lived with white supremacy for (laughs) 300 years. We are thriving. <laughs> we are thriving. I, and, I, and, I, and I do think we're finally kind of addressing white supremacy. I, I hope we are because um, I, I, unfortunately, <laughs> I have this argument with Adam all the time, which is the, the, the word white supremacy is so evocative of skinheads and all this stuff. That's not what we're talking about. It's not what people mean. And we have to get really clear about that. We're talking about Eurocentric, white-centric, not perspective-taking, which is what we're all asking for all the time, which is be more empathic. It's just a, it's just a call for empathy, right? Yes, yes. yes. I, Understand them. Understand the, 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 the boys, the, our black boys and their, and their culture. For one thing, please stop calling them black males. A male can be an amoeba. A male can be a cat or a dog. They are children. Mm. They are people. And by calling them African-American males, I, in fact, I, I just like the term black. It's a lot more simple, easier to say, rolls off the tongue better. You know, they are black boys or black young men. They are not just males. You know, they are people. 
And I think that's one argument that I have a lot of times with people who say, well, you, you know, you just can't call them boys. I said, well, why not their children? Yeah. And when you don't understand that they are children, then you start making these vague generalizations about how dangerous they are or that they can't learn or that they're causing trouble. These are children that need to be taught. These are children with mothers and fathers who care about them. And, and, and let me point out, Dr. Green has been a school teacher and a school administrator for more than 45 years with multiple degrees behind these things. So, um, you know, you can you can – I, you can address and, and think about things out loud that I feel like I, I can't. Uh, fatherlessness is sort of one of those things that really worries me. And um, But I'm, I'm glad you're saying it. Uh, it it's, it's, as a clinician, it seems to have real impact. And why don't I want – you know, I just want things to be better for people. So therefore, something that's having a bad consequence, I, I worry about. I also worry about intergenerational transmission of trauma. I wonder if you think about that at all. Yes. Yeah. Um, Which is part of the fatherlessness is part of that, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, our prejudices and our biases are passed on to our children, and which is sad again. Um, I was very fortunate in that I had a mother and father who then themselves had suffered under um, uh, Jim Crow. racism. Jim Crow. You know, they'd grown up in the South. Ugh. I remember hearing my father called a boy by this policeman standing on the corner. Yeah. And I can remember uh, stopping in a gas station, wanting to use the bathroom and it had white only on the door. Oof. That's racism. What kids, go, what kids have nowadays, you know, please. The fact that somebody didn't, doesn't like you, that's, ra- that's race. No, no, no. You don't know racism. Racism is when you ask your mother as you walk down the street, are we allowed to eat in there? And she's saying, yes, baby, we can eat in this one, but we can't eat in that. How do you, that's how, racism. I, I, I agree with you. However, how do you, how do you, how you, how are you not angry about that? You know what I mean? Or are you? Maybe you are. No, no. And because my parents, again, it comes down to, you know, having parents who, even though they had gone through it, and I've been called the N-word more than once as well. But what you do, you just, I think a big part of that is my Christian faith, mm. you know, and realizing that, you know, no, you know, I'm not going to go down to their level. In fact, my dad used to all, used to say, you know, when we moved out of the hood into the suburbs back in the 1960s, and they told me I was going to go to a predominantly white school. You know, I remember getting sick the night before school opened because I was just so afraid because I had never gone to an integrated school before. Mm -hmm. All the schools I'd ever gone to were all black, all black teachers. In fact, in Virginia, they were purposely segregated schools. So the fact that I was now going to go to school with white children, Mm. I was scared. I said, oh, my goodness, are they going to hang me? Are they going to lock me up? What you know, what are they going to do? And my dad came in. He said, honey, you don't have to worry. You go in there and one day, a few days from now, you're going to look down and you say, wow, my skin is different color than theirs because they're just like you. And I can remember him telling me that and going in. And I know now that I look back that there were teachers who, you know, probably didn't like me because I was black. You know, I'm in Maryland. This is still the South um, or, or who wouldn't put me on the cheerleading squad because I was black or wouldn't select me for certain things, but I didn't let it phase me. I was determined, like my grandmother always says, girl, you get yourself a good education. You don't have to worry about anything. And that's what I focused on, getting myself a good education, making sure that I was going to achieve. I wasn't going to be disruptive in class to give that teacher who didn't like me a reason to send me to the office. I was going to study hard. So I'm, I, I want to I wanna interrupt you because I have a tough question. Okay. Which is, I feel like black women got that message, uh, and it created a bit of a rift. Uh, there was a, a famous uh, black law professor at Stanford that wrote a book about this, between the success of African-American women and African-American males. And the males were told, by doing what you're describing, they were capitulating to being white. That that's being white. And you're you're no longer black. You're letting you're you're leaving us behind, or you should be guilty or ashamed of doing that. Is that I think that message is still out there in some ma- fashion. What do we do with that? It is. It's almost like crabs in a barrel. You know, I'm in Maryland now. Crabs in a barrel, trying to get out, and you pull you pull them down. Uh, when I retired from school, uh, from public schools, I started my own school. I wanted a school for boys, 
And I wanted the message to be that it's cool to be smart, that one day a nerd will write your paycheck. <laughs> so I wanted to turn that narrative around and say, no, boys, you need to make sure that you do what you, you do. And it, but if that message isn't told, you're right. They can look at it because I remember my uh, even my daughter uh, who speaks, I would say, you know, English. We uh, attended an inner city church and a little girl walked up to her and um, my uh, and was talking to her. And then later on, my daughter said, Mommy, this little girl walked up to me and asked me a question. I said, what did she say, honey? She came up to me and said, what name you is? She said, Mommy, what does that mean? <laughs> and I said, honey, she said, she said, Mommy, she said, I talk funny. I said, no, honey, you talk correctly. You talk what I consider to be what they used to call it the King's English. You talk in a way. Now, we can code switch. We can code switch in a minute. Sure. And I used to tell my boys, you can switch that code. Even President Obama used to code switch. Yeah. The way he talked to the president of France was not the way that he talked to the guys who came there who were basketball players who came to the White House. You know, we can code switch. I said, but still, you have to realize the society that you're growing up in. So I used to tell my boys... You want to dress in a way that people are not going to prejudge you by just the way you look when you walk in the room. The Stanford law professor I was referring to is Ralph Richard Banks. He wrote a book called Is Marriage for White People? Talking about – it really was the – I read the book. It was a long time ago. But the foundation was the extraordinary success of African-American women and how hard it was for them to find the males at a similar sort of – level of accomplishment not that they're not there but that they were they had they had too big a marketplace the boys <laughs> for, to, to want to settle in a marriage which is another reason maybe that marriages are not uh, as commonplace the destruction of the black family through the policies that were put forth in the um, late 1960s yes and as the black family was broken down then the messages that would have come from father to their sons telling them, you know, to be the best you can. You look at some of my, I look at some of my male contemporaries, the Ben Carsons of the world and the, uh, and some of the others who, you know, the, the, the Clarence Thomases of the world who, you know, who were able to achieve despite what was going around them because they had a message in, in um, Dr. Carson's um, life. He had a mother who was determined that he was going to learn. So when you have parents, strong parents, that will give you those messages to say that education is the key, that education is important. And that's what, that's where I grew up and my contemporaries grew up with back in the 50s and 60s. Education, education. My grandmother had an eighth grade education, but she was the one that taught me to read. And she used to always tell me, honey, it's important to learn. You get yourself a good education. And, and all the people in the neighborhood rallied around the importance of school. And they cheered us on, boys and the girls. So I think a lot of it comes from your family. It comes from your community as well and the messages that are being taught. It, it's interesting to me. I'm just thinking as I hear you speak that one of the great historical uh, figures that I have just – been preoccupied with lately and have endless admiration for is Frederick Douglass. Mm -hmm. And education is the reason we have Frederick Douglass. Now he fought for it. He had to, he had to scratch. He really risked his life to get it in fact. Uh, and I wonder if pushing into the foreground figures like that would help people understand what others had to go through to get this education, to the, why it was valued so much and what it could do to help people. It's like there's no – I don't know that we have a specific narrative of role models to help people put their get their hands around that. Oh, and Frederick Douglass is an excellent role model. And unfortunately, some of the role models, even though they may not be black, even our, some of our white role models are being vilified in, in Is Frederick days. Douglass out right now too? Is he being No, no. no okay. he, he's still in. All right, good. He's still in. Yes, yeah, he, he, he's still Ooh. in. I know at one, at one time, W.E.B. Du Bois was an out. Yeah. Booker T. Washington was an out. Yeah. But now they've come back in. Yeah. So – you know, depending upon, you know, which generation, which generation you are. But you brought up a good and, point and about what, Frederick Douglass. And let me just say, most people today have not been exposed to any of them. And you ha you have an obligation to read these gentlemen. You you must read their words. 
They're they're unbelievable, and it, the scales will fall from your eyes, yes. black yes. and white, everybody. Yes, yeah. yes. Thank you, yeah. thank you for saying that. Yeah. In fact, Frederick Douglass said something that I always remember. He said, "If you can read, you will be forever free," mm. and that I think is the real uh, tragedy among my my fellow educators and not teaching these children how to read, specifically our boys how to read. Um, Back, uh, I guess, in the 1940s, 1950s, they felt that whole language was the way to teach reading. Remember those Dick and Jane books? Yeah. See Dick Run? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was reared on. Okay, that was they were teaching you memorization, yep. memorizing words. That's why they re- kept repeating it over and over again, yep. so you would know that R U N was run. Well, and and to be fair, you know, I think we now understand that different people learn differently. My brain was geared up for it, for memory. I was one of the skills I had, so it worked for me. But I'm, but I was the only boy in the reading group. Interestingly, <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I for first, second, third grade, I was the only boy in the reading group I was in. Because the boys otherwise weren't keeping up, but I was just memorizing everything. <laughs> so. Yes, and that's true. And and with and many people are learning to read and yeah. have learned to read that way. Yeah. But for the vast majority, especially our boys, yeah. who brain and and your neurobiologist as well, yeah. that brain not being able to to memorize all those. Yeah. We need to get back to systematic, explicit phonics. That's how my grandmother, with her eighth grade education taught me how to read before I even went to school. Mm -hmm. And when that was thrown out, probably thrown out with some of those icons we just talked about, when that was thrown out, now we have, you know, third and fourth and fifth and 12th graders who cannot read the diplomas. Yeah, I I don't understand why they can't understand the results of what they're doing, why they can't read the results of their experiment. I'm just thinking as I hear you speak also that because of phonetics, I guess we'd call it phonics, phonetics, I was always an exceptional speller, exceptional. Mm-hmm. And by the way, when I learned other languages that had very strict phonetic rules, no problem. It, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, because English has lots of exceptions, right? And lots of mm-hmm. weird stuff goes on. You have to you have to memorize that too. Uh, but the phonics, the phonetics, or whatever we want to call it, stays with me to this day. It, it helps structure my brain. It does. It does. And and you, again, one of the fortunate ones. Um, but for some, many others who learn. <laughs> Never thought of Dick that. And Jane. <laughs> yeah, it, seemed, it always seems silly to me in retrospect. But yeah, I think you're onto something here. Yes. <laughs> yes. Huh. In fact, remember when um, manuscript. I'm sorry. Curs- uh, cursive. Cursive. Yeah. Was in. Oh, I, know, did, I had to like, do ooh. all that. I had to teach and learn all that. Yeah. Yes, yeah. but when they started teaching whole language, they couldn't allow kids to do cursive anymore because you're memorizing words. All the letters had to look the same. Wow. So cursive went out, manuscript came in. Huh, interesting. So so is part, I've got a ton of questions, of course, uh, and is part of, I don't know quite how to ask this, it feels like there is a, a faith basis to your optimism. Is that a fair statement? It uh, is. And is it a requisite of us moving forward? Or, or how do we integrate those strengths that you have into the message? Let's put it that way. Well, um, as you said, it is a faith-based message. Because um, some people uh, have get put off by that, and, and I want to make sure they don't, Right. Well, I, well, I, I'm, I, I don't mean to be offensive. No, but, not, you know, <laughs> not I, offensive. I, not offensive. I, I just want to make I, sure I, they receive it. They receive. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, different than know, offensive. I, they, they just don't hear it. That's not for me, kind of thing. I don't want. It, I don't want that to be a barrier. Oh, I understand. Yeah. I understand. But at the same time, you know, I have a, a devotion to someone who can save my soul versus to that person who can't really do anything to me. So I will speak boldly, just as boldly as other beliefs and other. Um, narratives are spoken um, that yes, I you know as a Christian, you know as a follower of Jesus Christ, that's going to influence everything that I think and say and and do. But what happens with um, my colleagues in the public school who can't? That's okay because I believe that if you use God's principles, they will work for you whether you're a believer or not. Uh, well, for example, character education 
was real big about um, about 20 years ago that schools were teaching the children how to be honest and trustworthy and have integrity. You know, those are, you know, those are God, godly principles and they're going to work. They're going to work, you know, whether you are a believer or not, as I just said. But in regards to our boys, again, I think truly it's a spiritual battle. But, you know, there are certain things that we can do. For one thing, teaching our boys how to be men of character. And you can do that. You know, if, if it's a public school teacher who can't talk about religion, you can just talk about the importance of being an honest, being part of being a person of integrity, a person of good character. You know, teaching our, giving our boys a moral foundation. You know, and whether it's built on the Muslim faith or the Jewish faith or the Christian faith or the agnostic faith, whatever, a moral foundation is key. Our boys need that because when a boy does not have that moral sense, when he doesn't have that controlling him, that testosterone gives him potential to do vast damage. And we don't want that. Yeah. We don't want that at all. Males are usually the sort, as opposed to calling it toxic masculinity, which I don't know if it does very much. Males throughout history are the ones that run amok, especially when they don't have jobs or families. But, but at the same time, the men and this, I've gotten myself in trouble before, but I'm going to say it anyhow. You know, I'm almost 70 years old. I love being almost 70 because I can say what I want to say when I want to say it. But the fact of it is, is that men are the strength of our culture from our fathers to our men who protect us in law enforcement, in the military, who build our buildings and build our roads, you know, they are the strength of our culture. In fact, Dr. Drew, remember that Bible story you used to hear back in the days of Pharaoh? And Pharaoh said, there's too many Hebrews. And he says, throw all the boy babies in the Nile. And I remember as a little girl thinking, well, if there's too many, why are you just getting rid of the boy babies? Because Pharaoh knew that when you destroy the men, the males of a culture, you weaken the entire culture because the female part that is left can be more easily controlled. Now, you may get a lot of letters and phone calls and say, who is that woman on there talking about that? Hey, like I said, don't send me any letters. I'm 70 and I can say what I want. But that is true. And just because you don't agree with it doesn't mean it's not true. But men are the strength of our culture. There has been no female dominated society in the history of mankind that has ever succeeded. And and let's just let me stand behind you on the e- Egypt uh, issue. Th- that was a society that exerted its power and control through physical strength. They they would just and it was harder for them to overwhelm the males than the females. To be yes. fair, that's just exactly. simply that's just simply the way it was. Mm-hmm. Um, boy, there's a lot packed in here, um, and, and I did <laughs> I didn't know you know I I, I was just I- intrigued by the title of your book. I didn't know we were going to go down this path. I just I just <laughs> I just instinctively knew that like you that there's stuff going on that we need to pay attention to with males right now, and uh, I see it in my own sons that they're they're scared. They want to do good, but they don't know how to. They're mm. we're, they're being told they're bad, that they're toxic, that they're, every time they are interested in a female, they're going to be accused of something. It's like it's they're paralyzed oh, and God. trying to move forward. And that's the adult males. I, I can just imagine what adolescent males feel like. Oh, absolutely. You know, they're afraid to even look at a girl or touch a girl and being accused. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they're having a big to do in college, you know, that they're re- they're changing the, um, the 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 laws where a boy can be accused, you know, without any proof, without any witnesses. He can lose his scholarship. He can be put out of school. You know, and I, again, I'm a woman and I know women. Yes, we need to have a voice. But at the expense of one group over another is just not fair. Well, and and as usual, we overcompensate when we try to correct something. Wouldn't it be great if there was a pocket-sized guide to help you sleep, focus, be better? Oh, guess what there is? It is Headspace. Ten minutes can change everything. It's your daily dose of mindfulness. Headspace is the only meditation app advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. 
Maybe you need help falling asleep. Headspace has wind-down sessions. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Headspace is backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash Drew. That is headspace.com slash Drew for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditation for every situation. Our friends at BetterHelp, you've heard me talk about it. It's customized online therapy, offering video, phone, even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to even see anybody on camera if you don't want. And you certainly don't have the uncomfortable sitting in a waiting room or making appointments. It's just right there for you. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. I have referred family, friends, and I am really impressed with BetterHelp counselors and the services they provide join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really all about i mean there's been a people have been reluctant but i think with the advent of services like better help the threshold is lower for people to go in and get those services it's worth looking into this podcast is sponsored by better help and the dr drew podcast listeners get 10 percent off their first month at betterhelp.com slash drew that is better help.com slash drew and, and i i actually did a radio show for a year with the first woman to say me to she was the the one that was initially one of the few the stories that got out about Harvey Weinstein, she was the object of his affection, uh, and uh, and I used to tell her, I go, this the lack of if without the due process, you're going to undermine what you're doing here. It's it's going to make it less important. You got it. And they were so emotional about it, she couldn't hear me. Now now she goes, you're right. You know, I, we should have you know calmed it. But interesting that the Me Too has sort of bled over into the cancel culture now. So now it's all over the place, a similar sort of mechanism where the kangaroo court of public opinion uh, and social media is the judge, jury, and executioner. And that's a that's not good for us, but that's a different topic for you and I, Dr. Green. Let me, <laughs> let me, let me I, I want to go back. I, I got more questions about faith and more questions about trauma, okay? Uh, and even maybe some more questions about characters as we go through this. Uh, do you think, it, well, it feels to me like in the last four years, politics has become the religion of the day in some weird way uh, or replaced, uh, uh, filled the vacuum left behind by religion, I think is probably a more accurate way to say it. And some three or four years ago, I kept saying, God, I think we need another great awakening in this country. It's like a great awakening. I feel it coming. And then the political thing swept in. <laughs> but I'm wondering if if we could get a great awakening on the heels of really how empty all this craziness has been. Well, I know that my colleagues and um, I'm talking about my spiritual colleagues in my church, that's what we're praying for, a great awakening, a revival, because that is the maybe, maybe, Maybe you ought to pray and do something. <laughs> Get up there and ask for it. Oh, start, yes. start putting some oh, tents yes. put some tents up and let's have it. Let's go. Oh yes. Yeah. Yes. In yeah. fact, and um in fact that's a big part of what our church has done. Unfortunately, the enemy <laughs> and I'm talking about the, the, the evil enemy has shut down churches. Mm. They have cowered pastors into not opening you know, I'm so proud of our pastor. He says, no, even if we have to meet out in the parking lot, we're going to have services. You know, we have to answer to God rather than to man. So I believe that Great Awakening, <laughs> Dr. Drew, that's going to be the, the salvation of America. You think I it's think coming? You think it's coming? I think so. I believe. Okay. No, I don't think. I know it is. I, love I know that. it is because I believe that God has a special plan and purpose for America. And it's not going to end anytime soon. Because he has a covenant with this, he made a covenant with this country. This country was founded founded on Judeo Christian um, principles. Other than Israel, there's no other country on this planet that arose out of the of a, having a covenant with God. And I don't care, you know, the, the evil forces look like they they're they're winning and they're kind of celebrating. But no, mm -mm. my God has a long memory, and his payday isn't always on Friday. So it is coming. 
Greater is he that is in us. I'm gonna I'm gonna preach now. You're gonna get me on I'm my, ready. You're I'm ready. Get me preach. my platform. Preach. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So, you know, through the power of the Holy Spirit, this is going to happen. And I know it's going to happen. The pastors need to step up. I know there's a big movement happening in California. A gentleman by the name of Mario Murillo, he is starting his crusades and thousands are flocking to him. It's almost like Billy Graham again. You know, I was a child who was saved during the early 1970s in the Jesus movement. We need another Jesus movement. But the big difference, what happened with the Jesus movement, you know, we were all saved. We all loved the Lord and everything. And then we all kind of got in our group. We kind of separated ourselves Mm. from society. Mm -hmm. That's not what God wanted us to do. He wanted us to infiltrate. We're to be salt. We need to to shake ourselves all over society and not just kind of congregate and singing Kumbaya, enjoying our own fellowship. And that's what has to happen. So yes, bring on that great awakening, but the church and Christians, Jewish believers, even our Muslim brothers who have a strong moral character, we need to get out and influence society because our society does not have the moral fortitude that it needs in order to succeed. So tell me about the 10 steps for the boys. I'm imagining things like developing moral character is part of it. That is, that is. Number one is building a bond. A boy has to respect you. He has to know that you respect him in order to receive. Um, I was a high school assistant principal at one point in my career. And I remember boys sitting in my office, you know, who had gotten in trouble for cutting class. And, and they would say, I'm not going to her class. I don't like her. I'm not doing her work. And I would think to myself, um, how is that hurting her? Mm-hmm. Hello? And But in their mind, they're like, I'm not going to work for you because I don't like you. And you have to build a bond. And building a bond with boys is different than girls. Girls are natural pleasers. You know, they want to please you. When I used to substitute teach, the the girls had never seen me before, but they're drawing me pictures. They're giving me flowers, giving me candy because they're trying to bond. Boys see a sub and they're like, hey, sink the sub. All (laughs) right. Playtime. So with boys building a bond with them, boys bond with uh, aggression nurturance, Michael Gurion calls it. When, when When they wrestle, when they're on the floor rolling around, they're not fighting. They're just saying hello. Well, you know, you know uh, it, it, just to go back to biology a little bit, there's there is a absolutely characteristic behavior of almost every mammal, and it's called rough and tumble play. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, mice do it. Hamsters do it. Elephants do it. It's rough and t- and the males do it. That's it. Our boys yeah. do it. Our boys do it. But our female teachers are going, "Oh, he's fighting. He's fighting. Go to the principal." And the boys are looking like, "What?" And yeah. even if they do fight. They could have a knockdown, drag out fight, blood, shirts torn. Yeah. Ten minutes later, they're the best of friends. That's right. They're very forgiving. Mm-hmm. So first, build a bond with a boy. Secondly, and, and let me just let me reinforce that again by saying there's data out there that shows uh, if, if you can s- develop a single solid attachment to one male outside the home at around the age of eight, you improve outcomes by seventy percent. Wow, that's I haven't heard one that. one that attachment, you? single sustained attachment. It's an old psychiatric principle. Uh, I first heard I like it. Her. I heard it at Rosalind Carter's center from she was having a big mental health symposium, and several psychiatrists presented that. So that's where the Big Brother thing came from. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, you just taught me yeah. something. Thank you, Doctor Drew. Mm-hmm. All right. Secondly, I said, well, because I'm a Christian, but any time that you can give a moral foundation to a boy. You know, I say in my book, lead him to um, a faith in Jesus Christ as as salvation. Um, And also teaching him character virtues. And again, as a Christian, I'm saying teaching godly character virtues, but all character virtues are godly. When you teach a boy how to be honest, how to be trustworthy, how to be respectful, you may not call it godly, but it is. But that's okay. Just as long as those principles are getting in. Um, understand how his brain and body works. Yeah. Parents need to educate themselves when they're getting phone calls from the, their teachers saying, Johnny won't pay attention. He's always staring out the window. Um, he, 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 he's on the floor. He won't pay attention. He won't sit still. And I remember telling this to parents myself and I had to repent that 
when a parent gets that word, she wants to take them to the doctor. And, and educators will tell them, maybe your pediatrician needs to evaluate him. Read between the lines, mom and Medis- dad. Medicine. Medicine. Get him some Ritalin. Get him some Adderall. That'll help. And what happens is that you have these healthy little boys who are being medicated in submission, turned into little girls because they're too active. No, teacher, don't do that. You just have to change your way of instruction. Don't change the child. You change your instruction. So know how his brain and body works. Understand his nature, his competitive nature. He wants to win. Don't have this, oh, we have winners and almost winners. Mm. No, you have winners and losers. Mm -hmm. That's what boys like. They like competition. They like rough, rough and tumble, as you said earlier. Teach him how to read. Teach him how to read. Mm -hmm. And the best way to teach him how to read, even though we have young men out there with the brains of Dr. Drew, (laughs) a lot of our boys and our little girls need that systematic, explicit phonics. Knowing at my school, I would have, this is when I started my own school. Parents would bring me their third graders, and I'm putting this in quotes, their third graders Mm -hmm who could not read B-A-T. So what I did, I told mom, I said, mom, I'm sorry, I cannot put him in my third grade. I'm going to put him in my kindergarten curriculum, you know, and we're going to start the basics. Mm. And we did, and within a short time, I would say maybe even a few weeks, they were getting the fundamentals, you know, and then I was able to progress them, progress them, progress them. Parents would cry Mm. to say, oh, Thank you for helping my baby. Thank you. Because they need to learn how to read. Teach him penmanship. That's step seven in my book. Teach him cursive writing. You know, we look at our children's handwriting and say, oh, it's abysmal. Oh, 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 their handwriting skills. Oh, they're terrible. Well, you know what? When your child was writing on your walls as a toddler, he didn't go like this, straight lines. He went like, this circles. And so it's natural for a child to learn cursive handwriting. And it also helps them with their phonic skills. In fact, I remember my son drawing these nice curves on the wall. And I said, you know what? He'll be a great, have great penmanship. (laughs) So at my school, we started cursive handwriting from kindergarten. Mm. And I had to be made a believer too, because I didn't think, you know, Four-year-olds could learn that, four and five, but they did. Hmm. And parents would tell me, you know, after they would see their child's handwriting, my goodness, he writes better than I do. <laughs> also, also, it helps with their phonics skills and their blending. Teach him math. I don't care. Drilling, drilling math skills has gotten a bad rap, but they need to know all this fancy kind of things. I remember um, kids back in that same test I told you about earlier where five plus five, you had to explain why it was 10. They had something else. They had on that test that you had to explain stem and leaf plots. Now, Dr. Drew, I've got my PhD. Have you ever used stem and leaf plots? No, never found that necessary. Don't even know what it is. How about box and whiskers? News to me. Hey, and I say, why in the world are we teaching these children when they can't add five plus five? You know Teach him math. They need those foundational skills. They need to know. Don't worry about teaching all that other stuff until you teach them that foundation. They need it. So that, you know, again, I'm looking at me. And I used to love math. I was one of those women who uh, my favorite subject was trig and calculus. I loved it. But I had that foundational of those drilling, those drill skills. Back in that segregated school, back in elementary school. My, my, that's all my teacher knew. Time tables. Time kind of tables, yeah. vision tables, learn it. Yeah. And then help him to do his best work. This is step number 10. Help him. You know, don't. I had one teacher on my staff at, 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 when I was in public school who said, I don't accept late work. These boys trying to turn in their work late. No, I won't accept it at all. But yet this same teacher. I would have to unlock her door every single morning and let her class in. She was late. Because she was late to work. (laughs) And I help the boys out. You know, this homework, if they turn their homework in late, still grade it. You're going to grade on what they know. You're not going to grade them on behavior. 
you know, on their promptness. You're grading them on what they know. Right. Make sure that they turn in their work. Give them incompletes. Don't let them sit by and say, well, I'll just take the zero. No, you will not. I will not allow you to pass this class until I get that assignment. But why can't I just turn it in? Nope. Not turn it in. Nope. I want it. So enforce to boys that you will only expect their best. And again, with my black boys, especially, I am tired of teachers feeling sorry for them, trying to give them a pass. No, they don't need that. They need to realize that the world is not going to give them a pass. Right. I got to tell you this story, Dr. Drew. Um, I had this young man. He was a little boy in my um, my public school. He was in second grade. And I found out because he kept getting in trouble. And I would call his parents and say, you know, you need to, you know, you, you need to talk to him. You need to talk to him. And his teacher says he's not getting his medication. This is before I knew about medication. That, yeah. Uh, and so finally, the mother came in. And she she knew my name. She recognized me. She said, do you know so-and-so? I said, oh, yes. I grew up with her, you know, back in. I said, wait a minute. This little boy is her grandson? She said, yes. You know, that that's my mother. I said, oh, little boy, you're mine now. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so what I would do with him, and he couldn't read again. He's in second and third grade. So I would bring him down to my office, you know, occasionally and, and, and talk to him about phonics and learning. My husband would even, and I used to even drive by his house and take him to church. Lost track of, of him. That was about 20 years ago. And I happened to meet or talk to um, a, a relative of his. And I said, how's he doing? And she said, oh, Dr. Green, he's not doing well. I said, well, what's going on? She sent me an article about him. Mm. This young man, 28 years old, sentenced to 65 years in prison. He, um, I read the, the court document about it, that he, even as a teenager, burglarizing homes in juvenile lockup. Again, no father in the home. Mm -hmm. um, juvenile lockup, got out of lockup on a Sunday, on a Monday, burglarized homes on Thursday. And finally, the judge says, I'm going to make an example of you. He had burglarized three houses. She said, I'm going to give you 20 years for each house, plus five more years because they found a handgun in your car. Mm -hmm. And so this young man now is rotting in a, at a prison right here. And... It's it's I when I go to people and I tell them you've got to help our boys. I remember going to a group of businessmen and saying you've got to help our boys. Donate to my school. Donate. You know we need your money because one day you're going to go out of one of your fancy board meetings and try to get into your Lexus and it's going to be gone because one of these little boys that you wouldn't help now decided that he needed your car more than you did, and that's what happened with this young man. I'll call him Tyrone. Tyrone lives in an urban, uh, urban town right outside D.C. He didn't burglarize homes here. He went up to Western Maryland, where the black population in the schools is like less than uh, 14%. So those educators up there who are saying, oh, we don't have to get involved with educating boys. These little boys, you better help them where they are now. Because they're not going to stay in their hoods. They're going to get in their cars and they're going to come to your fancy houses. And I believe strongly our boys, especially our black boys, if our black boys are in trouble, so are we all. Mm. And we better help them. We better help them now where they're still moldable and, and shapeable, where we can still have a part in their lives. I think we should leave it there. Uh, you've said a lot today. Uh, is there a website people can go to to learn more or to help make a difference? Um, I am. I work for an organization called the Boys Initiative. It is not a faith-based um, company, but it is an advocate for boys. It's called theboysinitiative.org. That's our website. And I can be emailed at the executive director at theboysinitiative.org. Like I said, don't send me any angry letters because <laughs> I won't read them. <laughs> because like I said, I'm 70 and I say what I want to say when I want to say it. But yeah, the boys in there, we're trying to make a difference. We're trying to 
um, recruit advocates who will stand in front of school boards, who will write legislators, who will uh, write letters to the editor and saying our boys are in crisis, be they black, white or sky blue, green. Our boys need help. Well, and if our boys are in trouble, so are we all. And, and unfortunately, in California, the the approach has been to, again, like I said, uh, to, if they're failing, well, no more grades. If they're truant, well, no more suspensions or no more anything. Just uh, therefore, it, it's not a problem. And uh, it's the opposite of what uh, any anybody who's raised children knows they need. Uh, Gary, do you reaching in on something? No, I, I, this has been fascinating. Yeah. I mean, is there is there anything that you would tell parents of boys to be doing as they're entering, you know, educational structures or stuff like that? In terms of how to how to assess know, I, the structures? Yeah, or? I guess just I ask selfishly as yeah. a as a father of a two year old yeah. who will be entering school in a few years. You know, yeah, what yeah. can I do to help him and help the the general structure? It, you need to be there. Oh, that's I am. it. I am. My <laughs> that's wife, it. My wife won't let me not and, be there. And, there. and the one, the one. I, let me see. Doctor <laughs> Doctor Green said one thing here about. Uh, let me if I can find it. It, it was I, it's sort of in the building character virtues and knows what know what more what his brain and body is doing. You'll have the greatest success with him as a dad by doing things side by side with him, mm-hmm. and then like whether it's shooting baskets or fishing or driving side by side, and then get him to talk. And you'll be amazed at what uh, what comes. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would say, if I could say one thing to parents, they need to become the advocates for their sons because society has very few advocates for mm. your sons. You need to educate yourselves. When the teacher starts telling you that, you know, Johnny's not paying attention, Johnny's just too active, you know, he's just too hyper, then you need to not blame Johnny. You need to tell the teacher, how are you teaching him? Give him a copy of my book. (laughs) Right. Are you teaching him like he's a boy? Please teach me like I'm a boy. Ten steps to success in school and in life. (laughs) Yes. Dr. Green, I know you have to go at the top of the hour, so I'm going to let you go. It has been such a privilege to talk to you, and I hope you won't be a stranger and you will let us help you and support you. And I think Adam would be interested in talking to her too, Gary. So, um, you know, we'll try to get your get your message out there. Please do. Please do for the sake of our children, for the sake of our, 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 our country. Because like I said, you know, our boys need help. Thank, Thank you. you, Dr. Drew, for having me. Thank you, Dr. Green, for all you do. And uh, we'll see you next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Hey, movie lovers, who needs a theater when you have Pluto TV? Grab your popcorn and your streaming device because free movies are here. Pluto TV is your home for movies. Great movies are playing anytime in over 20 exclusive movie channels of action, horror, rom-coms, and more. Watch hits like Saving Private Ryan, Pretty in Pink, and Charlie's Angels all for free. No signups, no fees, no contracts, ever. Download the free Pluto TV app on any device.